Literally, my body was uncontrollably shaking to the point you could see it shaking. And in my head, I'm asking myself, what in the world are you doing here? Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you far and wide listening from places like Poughkeepsie, New York, Worcester, Massachusetts, El Paso, Texas, Mexico City, Seoul, South Korea, and Wolverhampton, England. Great to be with you again. Thanks for making Horsepower Heritage a part of your day. And as always, don't forget that I can't do this without your support. So share the show with your friends, click that five-star rating, and leave me a review. And that's how we keep the audience growing week after week. And if you want to support the show another way, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash hpheritage and you can pitch in as little as $2. And it's a totally secure interface, just one more way you can help support creators online. All right, well today you're going to meet the two amazing women behind Valkyrie Racing. Have you heard that name? Their story has been featured in the New York Times, on Haggerty, and elsewhere. A little over 10 years ago, Renee Brinkerhoff decided she wanted to go racing. Since then, she's campaigned her 1956 Porsche 356 on six continents in some of the toughest events you can find. Renee's daughter, Christina, has been with her nearly every step of the way, handling operations and logistics, as well as capturing video and photography of her mom competing at events like the Peking to Paris Rally and the East African Safari Classic. In about a month, they're taking on their biggest challenge yet. 356 miles across the frozen wasteland of Antarctica in Renee's now heavily modified Porsche. And they're doing it to support children who've been the victims of human trafficking. I talked with Renee and Christina about all their adventures, their charity efforts, and the history they're about to make. It's an incredible story that you need to hear because they're on their way to raising a million dollars to make a difference in the lives of so many kids. And that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Maybe you can't afford that Shelby 289 Cobra or that Porsche 356 Speedster, but having a scale model on the shelf is easy with Model Citizen Diecast. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the massive 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And if you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, they'll give you 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Just visit ModelCitizenDieCast.com and check out their great selection. From race cars to classic cars and everything in between, Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, Valkyrie Racing, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Renee and Christina Brinkerhoff, thanks for being with me today. I cannot wait to hear your story. You're about to embark on a journey through Antarctica in a 1956 Porsche, but we should start maybe how you got into racing in the first place. I was in my mid-50s. I dedicated my life to family and homeschooled our four children did everything that goes with that. And that was a massive effort. We were pioneering back in those days. And I was at this point in my life where I had some free time that I was so happy about. And I realized one day in my laundry room, folding clothes, looking out the window, that I'd been telling myself something for a very long time. And that one phrase was, one day I'm going to race a car. 
there is no reason for me to have said that. I didn't have a background in cars. I wasn't exposed to car racing. It was just something I, I now looking back on realized I was just saying to have me look to the future of a one day kind of a dream thing. And when I realized what I'd been saying, knowing who I am, I realized I had to go do that. And it was really what I will call a have to. Okay, now you got to go do that thing. And then you can get back to enjoying your life. So it was going to be a one-time race. I ended up um, having that first race experience be in the La Carrera Panamericana. And it literally was a baptism of fire. One of the cars caught on fire that first race. Um, Someone died the first morning. Someone died the last day of the race. It's 30% attrition. 30% of the cars don't finish. And it's crazy. It's massively dangerous and crazy. And it changed my life. It altered the course of my life. And it, it has us where we are today. When you told your family you were going to go racing, what was their reaction? Well, they didn't know what I meant. And I really didn't know what I meant because I didn't know about racing and the kinds of racing. But I knew it was going to be real racing. So they embraced it. When I realized I was serious and that's what I wanted to do, it was like, okay. They just opened their arms and said, whatever, go ahead and do that. And you know, most people who get into amateur racing, they buy a used car, maybe do a little work on it, but you went big right out of the gate. Wow. I didn't know I was going big. I had no idea what I'd gotten myself into until I was in it. And then it was, wow, okay, here we're doing it. And everything just happening so fast and processing that and learning as I went. And I had no idea. I had no idea that I'd gotten into this massively notorious race with this history. And Porsche had a history in the race. I knew nothing. It was just, that's the race. I read about it online, about a paragraph. That sounds great. That's what I'm going to do. And it was, there wasn't a lot of investigation of knowledge up front. And did someone with La Carrera experience take you under their wing? Very good question. The first, I bought this car and thought, okay, if I'm going to do this race, I better first figure out if I can race, if this is some harebrained idea that I've been having. And I don't believe in coincidences, but I was connected to a gentleman who had purpose to go to the race that year, whose partner bailed on them. It was the 25th anniversary and they were desperate to have somebody do that race with them. This person actually happened to have the same model car that I have, a one year difference, same everything. And I was thinking, I'll make sandwiches, I'll clean windows, I'll be a part of somebody's team, learn about the race. But actually, he needed someone to help pay for a seat in the car. So my what I thought I was going to get to do for my entree actually became navigating and driving in 2012. And why a 356, by the way? I'd never seen that car model before until... I saw it for the first time and fell in love with it and said, that's the car. I knew I wanted to do old cars because my husband's cousin had done some racing in old cars. And so I liked the way they looked. And then when I saw this car, because the cousin bought one to restore, saw it parked out in front of his garage on the gravel driveway. And then I got to sit in it and hear it. And it reminded me of my souped up VW when I was a kid. And it's like, I don't have to go any farther. It's like, this is a fit. So that was really how it started. So it wasn't, it wasn't race prepped when you bought it. Correct. It was not. It was very shiny, very beautiful. Found a car builder, had to get a crew and do all that. And then modified my car to meet the specs for the La Carrera. And so you're now a veteran of three La Carrera Panamericana races, right? Actually more than that. So if we count 2012 and this other person's car, then we did 13, 
14, 15, and 17. Wow. Okay. Well, I don't know how I lost count somehow, but you've done so much racing in such a short period of time. It's a little bit, it's a little bit hard to keep track of. I mean, you've raced on every continent now except Antarctica, and we'll of course get to that. Um, how many miles do you think you've put on the car now, all told, with with the racing? I think close to 30,000 rate, just hard miles. And I know they're hard miles because I've seen video and photography, particularly uh, the East African safari looked absolutely bananas. That race, there's a reason no one races a, a three, five, six in that event. We found out very quickly why that was. It's so challenging on the car. It, it was constantly, if this, is this bump, is this hole, is this rock going to break it again? And it was a constant fight. You know, you want to push, you want to go hard, you want to be fast, but you know, the harder you hit, the more likely you're going to break and then you'll be on the side of the road. So yeah, it was definitely hard on the car. Renee, do you find that in driving that intense focus, that hypervigilance allows your mind to just kind of shut out everything else by necessity? And I think it's therapeutic. Do you find that to be true? 100%. Yeah. And if you're not there, then you're dangerous. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're putting yourself and your co-driver at risk. So you need to be in that zone where all you're thinking and focusing on is what you're seeing and what you're executing and what you're feeling. Yeah. It's totally in the zone. And then you develop that uh, synergy with the car where that's really amazing too. And the adrenaline that matches with that, right? Absolutely. Did you know your co-driver when you drove in the La Carrera for the first time? No. This person was willing to get in the car with me with no driving experience. A brave person. His name was Roberto Mendoza. He didn't want to be paid. He said, I would like a new race suit. And then after the race, if we've done well and you want to pay me, that'd be awesome. But he just loved that race. He participated in that race on more than one occasion um, as a navigator. He also drives his own car for fun and rallying. He was in his early 30s and he was willing to go down with me. And he was a super brave guy. When you think about it, you get in a car with somebody at those speeds and with that kind of danger. And he was game from the get-go. And, and he was not only like a great navigator as far as reading the turns, but he was also a little bit of a coach. He helped me mentally. Just to, to, and He was just like, we had this amazing, amazing connection and synergy from the very first moment. And that's that first day when we got on the um, at the meeting that that night, and they announced we had made history. And that was the first day, and we had you know seven days, and each day getting faster, getting better, and clicking, and having that whole thing that happens between you, your navigator, and the car. Right? It's like a triune experience, right? And phenomenal. You have to trust that person that they're that they know what they're calling, and they're not lost because it's so easy to get lost in those notes. And then they have to trust you that you're executing that. There has to be 100% trust. You cannot be second-guessing each other. And I've seen people on the side of the road in the in-car team yelling, screaming, fighting with each other. One person saying, I'm not getting in the car with you. You make me afraid. Or one person saying, you're not going fast enough. How are we ever going to be competitive? So there's many times there's fights in the car. And we never had that from the very beginning. And he was with me in every one of those La Carreras. Let's go back to that starting grid and that first mile or two. How did that feel? Literally, my body was uncontrollably shaking to the point you could see it shaking. And in my head, I'm asking myself, what in the world are you doing here? I'm praying, God, what am I doing here? And I need help. And seeing them counting me down, 
and knowing there's the line above cars because they put you out every one or two minutes. I forget what it is for that race. There's no turning around and saying, oh, I'm not going to go. I'll start later. No, you have your set time and you have to start and you have to go. And like you said, once I got going and once I, you know, like clipped off the quarter mile, the half mile, the mile, you get in that zone, you get in that groove and you forget everything else. And um, being afraid like that happened on many starts, on many days, but you get in that place where everything else is gone and you're just in this sphere, like on another planet. Yeah. It's crazy how much anticipation is really what's making you jittery and nervous, right? Let's talk about peaking to Paris. That's a completely different ballgame, right? Because as much as the La Carrera is dangerous, uh, incredibly fast, peaking to Paris is super long distances in the middle of nowhere, right? I, I know there are support teams, of course, along the way, but contrast those two experiences. Wow. Um, you got to get to Paris, right? Yeah. So you got to constantly be weighing that. You've got to get to that final arch and that's 36 days off. I changed navigators after La Carrera and the decision, it was pretty much because of a language barrier. I didn't speak Spanish. Ribeiro spoke English and spoke and speaks English well, but there were nuances in language. And in split seconds, you need to be having 100% communication. The Peking to Paris had very different challenges. We, you know, we had that whole engine problem in Mongolia and Mongolia was the highlight. And I think it is for most people that think about that event. It's like nothing else. It's absolutely amazing when you can look as far as the eye can see and see nothing, not a telephone pole, not a road. You might see a herd of camels or horses or something. It's just amazing. And there aren't roads and you're finding your path and you're using GPS coordinates and uh, that's where we had our massive failure. So then that put a hitch in our step the whole way. But we worked through all that and we got to Paris and we made it with everybody. And when we finally got our engine put back together in St. Petersburg, we were able to be competitive and have a strong finish. So every, every one of those events requires something different. And it, it's, it's just been a learning curve all along the way. And, and also, I just wanted to mention Christina was in that event with me. And she got to, her, her vehicle didn't break down. She had her own challenges, but she got to experience all of Mongolia. And that's the place I really would really like to go back. I've thought about, can I start an event there? Can I create an event? Um, I would love to go back. I think Mongolia is the most spectacular place I've seen in my life. Almost the size of Europe without fences and no roads. And it's, it sort of feels otherworldly. It's very hard to describe. Yeah. And actually, Christina, I was just about to bring you in. I'm glad your mom uh, nudged me a little bit there because so you saw your mom enter this crazy pastime. How involved did you get from the start? Well, I was there. She asked me to come down in 2012 in her first race. And, and then I went to USC film school. So my background is in photography and film. And so it, it just made sense for me to come document it. And, and she certainly probably needed a buddy and somebody to go through that with. So we, I flew to Veracruz with her and I experienced in that same hotel room, everything she was going through, her body shaking, her being up in the middle of the night, praying, trying to figure out how she was going to make her way through all this, all of the, of the emotions in that I was there for that ride. And as much as it sort of bit her, that bug, that La Carrera bug, it definitely bit me too. And then I would come down for two or other La Carrera races over the years, but I was 
working and I was an agent in Los Angeles and on my own path and certainly would come down during those races. But then in 2018, before Camino Stalinka in Peru, I came on and helped with the film and so and, and some of the operations. And so from that point, October 2018, I've been working with my mom. So I missed one continent. I missed Australia. I missed the Tasmanian race, but have been here for the rest of the journey. And I'm doing a mix of the media and the photography, and then a lot of times the operations too. So in Mongolia, you were driving your own car? I was in a in a different car with a film crew that was the only other team that was filming. So I was filming and then I basically paid for a seat in their car and paid for some coverage from them. And so I think we did it in a RAV4, <laughs> 36 days in a RAV4. Uh, it's certainly a commercial there going through Mongolia. And yes, it was filled with all of its own challenges and flat tires and breakdowns. And it's a roller coaster in that car that I'm, I'm in. And in every race, I'm in a, a media car, usually hanging out of a window filming. It's so funny that you mentioned the RAV4 because it's kind of a reality check. Like, yeah, I'm in this old classic car and we're bombing through, you know, the middle of nowhere. And, oh yeah, well, the RAV4 can do it too. It's like, <laughs> you know, but there's something about doing it in a classic vehicle. Oh yeah. yeah. Gosh, I'd, I'd love to go back and do that properly and get my mom through Mongolia because she, she didn't get to see a couple of days of that. And it's so spectacular. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell me about maybe some of the people and places along the way, wherever you've been. For me, what just comes to mind at first is Peru. The, the event that we participated in has been running maybe since the 60s or 70s. And it's a modern rally, all modern cars. And we brought our 1956 Porsche. We were told there's only one in the whole country, never sees the light of day. It's in someone's museum. So when we would drive that car, people would be yelling. You could hear them. You have your windows down and you can hear them from the mountains yelling, porch, porch, porch. And that was the most amazing thing for them and hear them coming and running down to see a car they've never seen before. And you're the only old car and they're standing and they're watching this race. This is their biggest race in their country. And just their love of that car, their, their, their passion in, in all these events, there's such passion in the people to help you get to the finish. And in this event, especially when we broke down and I'm saying, can't we the navigator? Can't we do this? Can't we tie this up? And it's like, ah, oh, no. And they're coming out and then they do it. They do it. They physically lift the car. They put bricks and stones and then they strap it up and tie it with wire, whatever they can find, because they want you across the finish line. They care as much or more than you do that you get across because you're the underdog. And in life, they're underdogs. Those people don't have anything in these places that you're driving through. So when they see you come in, there's symbolic of their life, their struggles and everything. So they want you to get there. And all that, those experiences like that, you're just like, it's worth so much, you know, those moments that you have. And so for me, Peru is one of those really big standouts. Old cars, old motorcycles, they connect people. Mm -hmm. It's just universal, you know? It's so unique. I think the main... Gosh, Peru stands out for me, but there's so much. I think the main thing I think we come away with is it's so humbling traveling. I think after peaking to Paris, you're so humbled, one, by the expanse and the beauty of the world and by your experience with all those different types of people that you don't speak the same language with, that have an incredible humility and kindness. And there's just this incredible openness of spirit and it's different in different places. But in Mongolia, people would bring us into their gur and then offer us food, right? And they have nothing. Even in Russia, and it, 
Martians are a little more challenging because they're very guarded. But Russia is incredibly poor and they want to find a way to help you. It's incredibly meaning how happy most people are with very little and how much they're happy to share and give of what they have. I think that's that's what I come away with. This is a really interesting paradox to me that the less people have sometimes, the more they're willing to offer you. Yeah, totally. Can we just touch on losing your engine in Mongolia? So from what I understand, you ingested a lot of dust on that trip and it was just too much for the car. Something so stupid. Like when you put the air filter back on, make sure it's seated. It fits around the groove before you put the top back on and screw it. That wasn't done. So <laughs> we had a couple of air filters that weren't doing the job that they were intending to do. And so what are you doing? You're just sucking in the dirt all day long. And that created sort of a domino effect, right? Because where do you get 356 engine parts in Mongolia? Well, you don't. And we have to bring whatever we're going to need or we think we're going to need with us. Right. There isn't, like you said, a support vehicle. There's some mechanics that run with the race that will help people if they're really in need, but they're spread out among all those cars and there's over a hundred cars. And uh, so you have to bring whatever tools and parts and things that you're going to need on the side of the road. And yeah, we didn't have the stuff we were going to need. That, that This was unanticipated. So an SOS goes out. You, you need to fix this thing. Is that where Tuthill Porsche comes into play? Is that where your relationship with them began? Yes, that's who I got on the phone when we broke down on the side of the road in Mongolia. I had been racing right the La Carrera. We decided to do Project 356 World Rally Tour. And uh, we were going to go to Mexico in our first race in 2017. In the late spring, early summer of that year, I got a phone call. And on the other end of the line is someone saying, I hope you don't think I'm being cheeky. I've never done this before. This is a cold call. I'm Richard Tuthill. I want to be involved in your project. So that's how our relationship started. And so he has been involved with the car since 2017. They came um, he had Simon Redhead, who's been with us in all these races and will be with us in Antarctica, come with us back to Mexico, even though we had a great team and we knew what to do in that race, just to learn the car and what we were doing. And from, from there, helped me with the car to what the main reason that I wanted someone like Richard Tudhill was because he had off-road experience with Porsches. And he's really the guru for that. His, his forte is 911s, but his father had started in VW Bucks. And has his own history of, of driving with VW. So really the team of them and, and that experience, I thought I couldn't find anybody else with that. So Francis Tudhill took that engine that we had waiting for us because we always have one that we're running with and one as, as an extra, right? That one was in the UK. He took it all apart. He put it in multiple suitcases. I don't remember if it was four or five suitcases. He broke that thing down into four or five suitcases, chucked, checked that luggage. In the belly of the plane he was flying on, got medicine St. Petersburg. We had 24 hours. He put it all back together, got us back on the road. Now he they had tried to get us going in um in Novosibirsk. They reworked the top end of the engine, not realizing, no, this thing is all the way down to the bottom. This is like a massive redo. So what was done in Novosibirsk, we just still had the same problems right after we left and got back on the road. I was stopping every hour, buying as many quarts of oil I could find. At that point, it didn't matter what kind of oil. I just need oil. 
And um, we got to St. Petersburg, which was right before the European challenge of that event. And that's when Francis did his magic and got us a running car again. So, yep, that's, they were wonderful. Wow. I think he rebuilt it in 11 hours all night at the Porsche dealership, one of them in St. Petersburg, and put that thing in on our one-off day. Well, and not to diminish the significance of that, but that's one beauty of old Porsches is that they're actually very simple, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, It's really great, right? You don't have to order chips and all these electronic parts and it's like it's simple mechanics. Right. What was the most grueling out of all of these races? And I wonder maybe what's harder? Is it worrying about the car and the, and beating on the car or is it the toll it takes on your mental acuity and your, your health. And I mean, you're, you're pushing yourself the whole time. Different kinds of survival. Um, well, gosh, East African, my body, when I came home, it took over a month to not feel pain because as the car was being hammered, it's like having a sledgehammer hit you. Every single bump is like a sledgehammer hitting you. There was no cush. There was nothing to absorb that take away that massive hit. And then just, it was so hard for the car. I mean, when you're driving tarmac, right, you learn what you're looking at. Shadows, that's that's light, that's water, that's oil. You have to learn all these things that you're seeing, right? When you start going off-road, and then when you're in Africa off-road, what you think is dry dirt because you're referencing something you've seen back home, it's not the same. So when you think you're moving two feet over here to miss something that's sticky and they're going to catch you up and you're, you know, you're going to have a problem with, which is actually worse than what you thought. So it's like you have, no, you have nothing to draw from. You have no frame of reference, no experience. So people with home court advantage or people that have done that event, right? Sure. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So it was just like trying not to keep like literally talking to that car, yelling, we're going to make it through this. You know, you're going through sand, you're going through mud. You can't change gears. You have to look at what you're seeing ahead. Try to chart what route you're taking, right? Trying to figure out what you're looking at. Sticky, slick, thick, dry, whatever, right? Sand, all different kinds of sand. Find your course, find your gear, so you can keep your revs up the whole time through and not slog down and not have that problem because there was no gear shifting change in any of that. And that could be a minute, five minutes. You don't, I mean, it's like trying to get through all that. And then at the same time, not wanting the car to break or get stuck or whatever. It was, it was really a, a really amazing experience that was uh, outside of anything I'd done. And it being the rainiest year of 40 years, it was really one to remember. When did, how do I put this? You're doing all this racing. Somewhere along the way, you get an idea that there's a cause that you need to work on. Where, where was that? Do you remember when that, when that came into your head? Absolutely. So after having done those La Carreras and having that success, our whole story was weird for people. It was, we're an anomaly, right? We're a new team. We're coming out, winning, get on the podium. We're doing really well. I'm starting this later in life with no racing background. Everything about us is, and I'm a woman, right? So all this is checking all these boxes of people want to know who you are and what you're doing. And our heart 
as just as human beings, and I say ours as like my daughter, my family, who we are as people, is always like, how can we help others, right? So when we would go to Mexico, we would do everything we can in the few, the little bit of time we had down there to help those people because they're so amazing. But it's like, come on, there has to be something more. There has to be something more. How can we take our voice, our little voice, and make it a big voice? How can we take our little impact and make it have a big impact? Uh, as we're having these conversations and, and throwing ideas around and thinking what we can do with the car outside of just going to Mexico, I got introduced to child pornography and child trafficking. And, and I don't believe in coincidences. I met a guy in the FBI who's undercover. He introduces me to this whole thing. I have, I have no idea that's going on. And he educates me how it's a huge business. It's a huge crime. It's massive. It's There's all these people consuming the stuff and how sick it is, how dark it is. This is making me sick and feeling what in the world? How can I do something? Finding out that that feeds into child trafficking. People that are watching child pornography are usually people that are buying sex from kids. So it goes hand in hand. And learning about that, then not long after that, I sat next to a guy in a, on a bus going to pick up a rental car, sat down next to him, looked on his phone, just glanced over. He had a pornographic image of a child. He quick flipped it. And, you know, you feel things from people, right? This is weird. What's going on? That's not a coincidence. So I'm saying, okay, all these things are coming together. This is something we're supposed to be getting involved in. This is something we're being called to do. This is finding us. What are we going to do about it? So all these things are coming together at the same time. And that's how we decided to take all of our efforts, our strengths, you know, our talents, our resources, our time, and do something to affect change for kids that are being trafficked. And we did, came up with Project 356 World Rally Tour. It's a global problem. Let's take the car globally. Let's raise awareness, awareness globally. Let's give money globally. And let's do all of that. And um, Again, I don't believe in coincidences. Our lives, I believe, have a path that we're supposed to be journeying down. And this is our journey. Renee, a lot of times when people are confronted with an evil like that, you know, we want to avert our eyes. We want to look away. We want to pretend it doesn't exist. We want to deny it even in the face of it, right? Did any of that, you know, hit you? Did you, did you feel uh, maybe a loss of faith in humanity? I mean... I, I guess I'm the reason I'm struggling a little bit here is because that is such a singular and shocking thing to to be revealed to you. I mean, I know the evils of the world. I, I've I've seen plenty for myself, but that in a, in and of itself is just a singular, cruel, evil thing. So, how did you process that? There's so many you know ways to answer that question because, um, like, when you first hear it your heart is wrenched, your gut is sick, right? And then you wonder, okay, well, how will I do that, right? How will we do that? And then we talked about, Christina, I talked about, how do you talk about with these people, with people? How do you broach this topic without wanting them to walk away and close their ears? How do you engage them in this? So that, that was, you know, a lot of time spent trying to figure that out. But as far as running away from it was like, no, this, we have to, this is so important. And, and how, how we both feel, Christine and I both feel about this is, um, and she's going to have her own opportunity to do this, but I wanted to see for myself. I wanted to have the experience of seeing girls and boys that are being trafficked, talking to them, helping to be engaged in getting intel for law enforcement 
so that they can actually arrest the people that are doing the trafficking. So I actually, this this last summer, had the opportunity, I say the opportunity, you come home from these things, it takes, a, uh, it takes time to get it out of your system because it's awful. You're sitting across from an individual, a human being that is trafficking the people on our planet, on our world, that we're supposed to be nurturing and caring for the most vulnerable, right? Those that need the most protection. And I'm looking on his phone and he's showing me images of young girls his catalog, who do you want? These are for sale. These people, these young girls are for sale. And for me to see that, it's like, that. this is real. You can read statistics, you can hear, and, and most of the money spent in this effort, right? And most, and a lot of these things, like whether it's child trafficking or whatever it costs, is spent on doing research. They say 80% of the funds that go to- I think it's 80%. Is spent on research. Okay, we need research, but more money. Let's flip that around and spend more money actually teaching girls and boys how not to be entrapped by people that are going to traffic them, how to protect themselves, how to rescue those people, how to restore their life. That's where the money should be going. Obviously, you've researched this in depth. You've put yourself in these positions to understand fully. What have you found or learned in terms of how governments and institutions and law enforcement uh, law enforcement organizations want to view the problem, attack the problem, deny the problem? I mean, well, I, it's shocking, Maurice, because it's a hundred and fifty billion dollar industry, right? So you, we all know about drug trafficking. We all Let's talk say about billion, it. billion. That was a billion, big, yeah. right? And we all talk about drug trafficking, but we don't talk about human trafficking, which is the second largest illegal business in the world. It is right underneath that. And they're more and more bringing more people. Those drug traffickers are the same, oftentimes the same people that are brokering humans. A gram of cocaine is you can only use that once, right? It's a consumable. And then a human, you can sell that person again and again in perpetuity. So it's just this incredibly complex and there's so much money in it, right? In terms of how it funnels through our world. But what we've seen internationally is it's, a, it's enormously underfunded. And I think that what we've seen is, is specifically in the rescue and the, pro, the, you know, the prosecution, we're working with this special prosecutor in, in Lima right now, and he's just incredibly underfunded. And so at every turn, and, you know, he has this micro budget to choke, go try to rescue these girls and they're, it's everywhere. So it's, I feel like we need a, we need a movement. We have to stand up and do something and we have to put our money where our mouth is, right? Organizations that can go affect change. So, you know, we, we're so proud to be able to say 100% of what comes in goes out, right? So we don't take a clip of anything. and We're in a really special position that we're able to do that. So, Christina, for my listeners, if they want to contribute, give them an idea of where the money goes. Right now, we're focused if we sort of crystallize where those funds are going. And so they're going to Kenya, to a couple organizations, one in Nairobi and, and soon to be one on the coast. When we go to India, there's a there's a girl's home south of Mumbai. And in Mumbai, there's 300,000 girls under the age of 18 that are trafficked, right? So it's a huge problem in India. So in India, there's a, there's a home there that rehabilitates girls. And then in Thailand, we support an organization that does rescue. In Cambodia, rehabilitation. And then in Peru, we're working with law enforcement down there and also in restoration, rehabilitation of young women and young, young men as well. So right now we're in about five countries that all of those funds, 100% that come in, go directly out to those organizations. 
Right. And it goes without saying, you've fully vetted these organizations. Mm -hmm. um, you've yeah. seen the work that they do. You know, this is, this is such a dehumanizing thing to think about. And I can't imagine the psychological and physical trauma that these young people go through. Their lives need to be rebuilt. So uh, if you look at the problem in total, it seems overwhelming. But if you... Yeah, you'll never get rid of the problem. Right. Because it's a sickness of the soul. But you can help girls and boys' lives. And how much is one of those lives worth? You know, if I was my child, what would I do? Right? You always ask yourself that question. So it doesn't matter how big the problem is. How, if the ship's going down and there's 400 people, if you could come away and say, I rescued 10. I mean, what is that worth? You can't look at it and say, it's too much. I can never, I'm not going to get involved. Why not? Why wouldn't you? Of course you are. Absolutely. And by the way, I'm just curious. Do you find that the, a large percentage of the children who are trafficked are kidnapped or are they unwanted at home or have they fled their homes because of problems at home and then they wind up in this predicament? So in the United States, a lot of these girls or boys are lured online through chat rooms and through social media and things where people pose to be someone who is going to be a friend of theirs. They, they know how to find vulnerable young children. They know how to do that, right? They're predators. They're predators. They're ex this is their expertise. They know how to look for them in a mall. This is what they do. This is how they make their money. So, I mean, it looks like different things, but there is a common theme. Most of these people, I think, are tricked. They're lured in. They're lied to, like the young girls in Kenya. Oh, yeah. So the, in Kenya, a lot of the girls come from the Himalayas, from Nepal and India. And when we were there in 2019 and we were working with this, this shelter we support, those girls were being targeted at convalescent homes where their parents were sick. And so the traffickers would go in and say, I have a job for you in Kenya. Come with me. We'll get money back to your helps, you know, keep your parents alive. And, and so I hear this story. It's a variation of the story over and over and over again. Same thing in Lima. We have a job for you. And then lo and behold, they have a bond and they can't be released from that bond until they pay their trafficker back. Right. But they can never pay their trafficker back because every day they're digging a hole. Right. Because they're, they're they charge them for housing and for food and they keep their passports and then they blackmail them. They take photos of them compromised. They say, we're going to show this to your family. Here's we're going to find out who you really are. This is what you're doing. So they shame them. And then sometimes they beat them. I mean, they, I mean, there's so many ways to manipulate and control a person. But the theme is the same all over, whether it's in the United States with the girl who ran away from home or got picked up in the mall or whatever. They think it's one thing, but it's something else. This is heavy stuff. This is very different for my audience, but I think they're going to embrace it. You know, I've ventured away from just happy talk about cars before, and I'm really, this is just so important. Um, so how do people help? I, I know that people right now are listening and going, I want to be part of this. Since we're headed to the ice, right? We're headed to Antarctica. We built a campaign around that and it's called Donate 356. And for a minimum donation of $356, we'll inscribe your name under the hood of the car, send you an exclusive ice challenge hat, and you can come to the ice with us. But 100% of the donations we receive go directly to frontline organizations. And again, those organizations right now are Peru, Cambodia, Kenya, India, and Thailand. And those are organizations dealing with education, rescue, and rehabilitation. 
And we, our goal is to raise a million dollars by the time we get off the ice in Antarctica. And we're very close to 500,000 right now. And so we're making a, a final push to try to get as many people as we can to come alongside of us. And the easiest way to do that is to visit our website in valkyrieracing.com slash donate356. Now, it doesn't have to be $356, right? That's a benchmark for people who really feel generous and want to be part of the Antarctic journey. But people can give any amount. Oh my goodness, $10. Yeah. Anything people are able to or feel led to give, we're so excited by that and I'm so grateful. Terrific. So if people want to donate, they simply go to valkyrieracing.com forward slash donate 356. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes for that so that people can just go to my show notes and click on it. Easy as pie. So you're going to Antarctica. This is a very different excursion than you've done before. The car has been transformed. I would love to hear about that process. Well, just like we you know, hooked up with Tuthill Porsche to take us off-road, we had to find a polar expert. Who knows Antarctica? And so we found Kieran Bradley and Jason DeCarteret. And those two have made a record and broken their record of driving the fastest time to the South Pole in a vehicle. And Kieran has been involved in the engineering of those vehicles. And Jason is the Antarctic guru, let's say. He's led over 50 expeditions in the world, most of those at one of the poles, cross-country skied it, driven it, whatever. He's the guy they call when he's, if he's down there to help do a rescue off of Vincent Mass at 16,000 foot peak down there. I mean, he is the ice guy, right? He's the ice expert and he'll be in the car and um, is helping us with all the logistics of getting down there and what the problems will be. And they're our go-to guys. Gosh, it's such a privilege to work with both of them. And certainly some of the most interesting parts of this whole journey have been able to listen to Kieran explain. And we've gone through the iterations in the beginning, my mom was adamant. She didn't want tracks. Right. And he really tried to figure out how do we do this on tires? And then he realized, well, I haven't going to have to cut the entire body out. We can't, if we want to preserve anything that remotely looks like the three, five, six, we can't do it with that. So then he said, you know, we can cut just a little portion above the wheel to fit the tracks. And then we're going to put skis on the front. And if you, if you talk to him, he'll bullet poise, gosh, 20, 25 things that sort of had to be t- true. When, it, you know, the car had to have a footprint and imprint less than a human foot. So we are gliding over that ice. And so what he's done to make that car, hopefully knock wood <laughs> run, right? With those skis and that tracks is, is just totally phenomenal. And it's just been a fascinating experience. He's, he works at Lotus as a senior chassis engineer, but he does these extreme vehicles. He's done wind powered and solar powered and has a specialty in in sort of these extreme requests. The blend of the old with the new is incredible. It's, It's really seamless. It looks like something Porsche would have built themselves. And people need to go on your website and check out the photos. And also your Instagram is Valkyrie underscore racing. I mean, tracks in the back, skis in the front and an amazing livery. The car looks fantastic. I'm sure it's going to perform as expected, but let's not forget you're going to be in 40 below temperatures, high winds, winds as high as 200 miles an hour, potentially. Let's hope not. So we're talking as extreme as it gets, right? There's no other place on this planet with these extreme conditions, whether it's terrain or weather, doesn't exist. And um, like you were just saying, you're blending the old with the new. That was one of the big challenges Kieran had was 
I have a car with metallurgy from the 1950s. The things I'm fabricating are all modern metals, things to withstand the cold and everything and these kinds of breaking points. Then we have a car that's been beat up a lot. So it's got cracks and stress places and repairs, right? So yeah, blending the old with the new, the old technology with these new components and, and all, it's a marvel. And like you were saying earlier on the website, it delineates all these things that he had to do to the car. And it's, it's truly is an engineering marvel. Yeah. I'm so impressed with it. And um, I cannot wait to follow along on your journey. So give people a sense of what this journey is going to entail. We're talking about 356 miles on the ice with essentially no landmarks. I mean, everything looks the same. So we, we fly down to Punta Arenas, Chile, which is basically the very tip of Chile, almost to the bottom of the world. And then we get on a, a Russian Aleutian cargo plane. And that takes us to, I think it's four, four and a half hours to Union Glacier. Union Glacier has a blue ice runway, naturally for me. And that is the interior. We're not going to the coast. There's no animals. We're going to, you know, an interior spot. So when we start the mileage, that symbolic three, five, six mileage, we're going to go towards the South Pole halfway. And there's Jason knows where the crevasse fields and, you know, the front of that car, that's a crevasse bar with solar panels on it. So he, he you know, the ice is shifting every year, but he has a, a rough idea of where those crevasse fields are every year. So we're heading towards the South Pole, as much half the mileage, and then returning back. And then hopefully, our, you know, our main goal is to complete the mileage. But after that, you know, we may have extra time, but it, everything is weather dependent and we'll be camping on the ice and it'll be at 24 hours of sun. And well, well, one thing is people need to, I don't think they consider is that there's no one to come help you, at least not quickly. And you have to have everything you might need to take care of yourself. So plan for the worst, extra food. You're, wear, you're wearing the clothes you're going to wear the whole time when you get off that plane from Chile. Change of socks and if you're lucky some underwear changes. But uh, the car itself, the 356, will carry everything Jason and I might need. with tents, sleeping bags, food, cooking utensils, all that. We have to be independent and self-supporting. And that means all of us. And Christina's going to be in, in another vehicle. Some people like to call it a support vehicle. But really... We're supporting each other. They may need our help. We may need their help. And it's just a team effort. Um, so that's something to think about. And um, sat phone, you know, yeah, we'll have a sat phone. There's only one satellite that covers that part of the planet. So you're, you know, you limited communication. Um, yeah, you just have to do the best you can to be prepared for whatever might come your way. Incidentally, Christina, what vehicle are you going to be in? Is it like a snowcat or? As it's been described to me, like an eight-wheel drive truck, oh. which I've since realized that I have to keep incredibly cold to, for the cameras, right? Because so, it's all about the shock of temperature and condensation. So, And my mom doesn't have a heater in her car. And the heater we have in my car, we won't be using. So it'll be an icy, cold experience for sure. And keeping the car at operating temperature even is a challenge, right? I mean. At those temperatures, the car never really would warm up. Has Kieran uh, done some modifications to keep some heat in the engine? Actually, Ted Hill helped that. Kieran told them what the things were that we needed to do, and then okay. Ted Hill helped with those. So, for instance, it's an air-cooled engine, right? You don't want to be sucking in this massive cold air, the engine compartment. So they're rerouting the air to warm the air, to 
trap the air so that we have warm air coming in there. Um, they have coolers, actually, air coolers. So trapping the outside cold air to put on all the things where really one of the main concerns is that certain parts will be overheating, whether it's the gearbox or some of the other components that are moving the tracks and everything. Those um, We haven't really been able to test the car. It got tested in Kieran's backyard when they had a snowstorm. So you know, a grass, a grassy lawn with a bunch of snow on it was what we, he tested it on. And we were hopeful that everything's going to work right. So we've done everything we can to accommodate the things that may go wrong mechanically, but if we're just going to be testing it by doing it, right. We'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Like every other race, right? When, when is your first day on the ice when you set out? And then how long do you expect this to take? We're getting to Chile on November 27th. And then on December 5th, we'll be on Union Glacier in Antarctica. And we this is weather dependent. You hear horror stories of people getting caught there for weeks, not accomplishing the goal. And so we need the weather gods on our side for sure. But hopefully we'll be there for from the 5th to the 15th. And we'll be able to, that's enough time to accomplish our goal. Fantastic. Once again, ValkyrieRacing.com forward slash donate 356. Renee and Christina Brinkerhoff. It's been my honor. I can't wait to follow along. Godspeed. I'm so excited for you. Thank you so much. Gosh, so fun to talk to you. Thank you for having us uh, and letting us talk to your audience. Really feel honored and humbled. Thanks so much. Truly my pleasure. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast, tell your friends about it, leave me five stars and a quick review. I'm not asking much. By the way, buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage if you want to support the show that way, literally cheaper than a cup of coffee. Read articles and watch videos at horsepowerheritage.com. And you can also drop me a line there. Uh, just click on the contact button. I always like hearing from you guys. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.